Hey there. Before we begin this episode, I wanted to let you know that Based on a True Story has its own Alexa skill now. Just say, Alexa, enable Based on a True Story to enable it. And then you can say things like, Alexa, tell Based on a True Story to play the latest episode. Or, Alexa, tell Based on a True Story to fast forward two minutes. Check it out and let me know what you think by leaving a review for the skill. Thanks. All right. And now, on with the show. Throughout the history of cinema, there have been very few movies that hold the distinction of receiving double-digit nominations for the Academy Awards. Titanic, La La Land, and All About Eve are the three atop that list with 14 nominations each. Today, we'll be learning about one of those movies receiving double-digit nominations. For today's movie, Bonnie and Clyde, the 10 Oscar nominations came in 1968. The film would come home with two of those awards, including Best Cinematography for Burnett Guffrey and Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Estelle Parsons for her role as Blanche Barrow. This was a huge deal at the time because it was one of the first films to depict murder in a casual manner. In today's movies, the anti-hero in a movie is a lot more common. In 1967, not so much. For that reason, a lot of film critics and historians point to 1967's Bonnie and Clyde as being the movie that started making it alright for violence in movies coming out of Hollywood. But was all that violence and other things we saw on screen historically accurate? I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before we jump into the world of Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker, let's take a little break to set up our two truths and a lie game. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three facts. Two of them are true, and one of them is a lie. You'll want to remember these. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, there were a lot of crimes that got attributed to Bonnie and Clyde that they didn't actually do. Number two, Clyde met Bonnie before he went to prison and cut off his two toes. Number three, Bonnie Parker married Clyde Barrow before they went on the run. Okay, now remember those because as you're listening to our story today, you'll find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and then by a process of elimination, you'll know which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. And, well, I have you here. Have you ever wished you could get more based on a true story? Well, you can. Just sign up to be an official producer of the show, and you'll get access to all of the past and future bonus episodes. For example, there have been bonus episodes for movies like Becoming Jane, The Lost City of Z, Matahari, From Hell, Breach, Anastasia, and many more. There's hours and hours of bonus content ready immediately, and of course, by becoming a producer, you'll get access to all future bonus episodes. Oh, and producers also get to pick a movie to jump to the front of the line. So I have right now a couple hundred movies in the backlog. So at a weekly show, you can tell how long it's going to take to actually cover many of those movies. When I get requests, I love adding them in, but it takes a while to get to them. If you want to make sure your movie jumps to the front of the line and get covered on the show, you can do that by becoming a producer of the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And with that, 
let's compare history with Hollywood's version of Bonnie and Clyde. The movie opens by cycling some photos in the opening credits. Then we see a photograph of Bonnie Parker beside some text on screen that it says she was born in Rowena, Texas in 1910. It goes on to explain that she moved to West Dallas and then in 1931 she worked at a cafe before her career in crime. That's true. More specifically, Bonnie was born on October 1st, 1910. But there's more to the story. Rowena is a small city 60 miles or about 96 kilometers south of Abilene. That's in southwestern Texas. And I guess calling Rowena a city might be giving it a little credit. Just to get an idea of the size, in the 1930 census, Rowena had 1,373 people. More recently, in 2000, 483 people reported living there. Technically, according to the United States Geological Survey, it's classified as not a city, but a populated place. That's defined as, quote, a populated place is usually not incorporated and by definition has no legal boundaries, end quote. So Rowena was never a very big community. But if we could ask Bonnie Parker what she thought of Rowena, she probably wouldn't remember any of it. When she was only four years old, Tragedy struck her family when young Bonnie's father, Charlie, died. We don't really know how he died, but he was only 30 years old, so we can only assume it was quite a shock. What we do know is that was the catalyst for Charlie's widow, Emma, to pick up her three kids and move them to where her parents, Frank and Mary, lived in Cement City. Today, we know that area as West Dallas, which is exactly what the movie refers to. Now, for a bit of context, West Dallas is the area just across the Trinity River in Dallas. So it was here that Bonnie Parker grew up. Emma was a single mother raising three kids. Even with her parents' help, that's not easy. Food was scarce, and luxuries were non-existent. Perhaps that's why, in 1926, Bonnie was smitten by a young boy who spoiled her. He was well-dressed something that made him stand out among the boys in Cement City area at the time, and always seemed to have money for dates. Bonnie loved being spoiled and soon found herself head over heels. Six days before her 16th birthday, Bonnie married the boy and became Mrs. Roy Thornton. Maybe they married too young. Maybe life in West Dallas just made things more difficult. Maybe it was the fact that Bonnie Parker couldn't have kids, something historians have attributed to an unknown medical procedure she might have had that left her barren. Or maybe it was Bonnie's dreams of living a life that mimicked the stars she saw in the movies. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history, too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. 
Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Before their first anniversary, Roy had started drinking heavily and hitting Bonnie. On top of that, he'd disappear for long periods at the time, leaving Bonnie wondering if he was being faithful. It was because of these periods of alleged infidelity that led Bonnie to start figuring out how to support herself. And that's why, just like the movie says, Bonnie got her first job as a waitress at a cafe. Some historians think perhaps Bonnie fell into the common practice of prostitution to make ends meet. That's up for debate, though, because quite honestly, we don't have any proof of it. The primary reason people think that is because later on, Bonnie would write a poem detailing many of the prostitutes in Dallas and the streets that they worked at. There were enough verified details that there's no way she could have just guessed it. She had to have at least frequented the area. So that's circumstantial proof at best, but therein lies the reason for the debate. Oh, and Roy dropped out of the picture for Bonnie when he was arrested and sent to prison. She was independent by then, so she didn't bother trying to go back to him. But technically, he and Bonnie never got divorced. Going back to the movie, after seeing Bonnie's photograph, we see a photo of Clyde Barrow. For Clyde, the text on screen explains as being the son of a family of sharecroppers. Unlike Bonnie, Clyde was a thief from a young age, pulling off small-time jobs until being caught and serving two years for armed robbery. Then he was released on good behavior in 1931. And like we learned about Bonnie, that's true. But again, there's more to the story. Clyde Barrow was born on March 24, 1909, so almost exactly a year and six months before Bonnie. He was born on a farm near Teleco, Texas. That's about 250 miles or 400 kilometers to the east of Rowena. Despite the distance, Teleco was pretty comparable to Rowena in that they were both small communities that were primarily consisting of farming families. And the Barrow family was no exception. Although, unlike Bonnie, who left the rural Rowena after her father's son passing, Clyde's childhood kept him around rural Teleco. Like Bonnie's early days, Clyde grew accustomed to poverty. But that didn't mean he liked it. Both Bonnie and Clyde had a common theme in their childhood in that they looked up to the stars they saw in the movies. They wanted that life. Another common theme was that neither saw a benefit to staying in high school. For Bonnie, it wouldn't help her change her social status. She was poor and from a part of town that almost guaranteed her lot in life was limited to only a few options none of them living the Hollywood-style life she wanted. Similarly, Clyde, or Bud as he was called around the house as a child, was fascinated by his older brother's lifestyle. That older brother, Ivan, had moved to West Dallas and had gone through multiple wives and run-ins with the law. It was a fascinating life compared to the boredom on the farm that Clyde lived. So, when he turned 15, 
Clyde moved to Dallas. Oh, and Ivan Barrow's nickname was Buck. He's played by Gene Hackman in the movie. Speaking of which, back in the film, after the two introductions to the main characters, we get to see them meet. That happens, according to the movie, when Bonnie looks out her window one day to see Clyde trying to break into the car outside her house. The movie highly implies that this happened in 1931 by mentioning that date in both the brief little bio cards for Bonnie and Clyde. That's not true. The real moment when Clyde Barrow met Bonnie Parker, or Bonnie Thornton if you want to use her married name, was actually earlier than that, and it did not happen like we see in the movie. According to a great book called Go Down Together, The True Untold Story of Bonnie and Clyde by Jeff Gwynn, that happened on January 5th, 1930, when Clyde went to a party with one of his friends named Clarence Clay. As fate would have it, Clarence's sister was married to a man named Buster, Bonnie Parker's brother. So even though the whole scene where Clyde meets Bonnie in the movie is fictionalized, if there is one thing that the movie gets right, it's that they seem to hit it off right away. Oh, and one of the stories that Clyde tells Bonnie as they're walking along the street in the movie after meeting is how he cut off his two toes. That's why Warren Beatty's version of Clyde walked with a slight limp. According to the movie, he cut off his toes to get out of a work detail, something that we see him laughing about in the film. And that's true. But it was no laughing matter in real life. This happened at the Eastham Prison Farm, where Clyde served almost a year and a half for a string of crimes like robbery and even murder. Although it's worth pointing out that there's not so much evidence to suggest Clyde actually killed anyone up to this point, but being associated with killers made him suspect, and along with the other crimes, most notably being robbery, Clyde liked to steal cars, he was sentenced to prison on April 24, 1930. So that's flipped from what the movie shows, because in the film, Bonnie meets Clyde after he gets out of prison where he cuts off his toes. In truth, Bonnie wrote to Clyde while he was in prison. As for Eastham, many historians consider this is where Clyde transformed into a violent criminal. Before his stay there, which was filled with 10-hour days of backbreaking slave labor in the farm's fields, there wasn't much evidence to prove Clyde did any killing. It was in Eastham, though, where he committed his first premeditated murder. None of this is shown in the movie, but that was a man named Ed Crowder. Ed was over 6 feet tall and 200 pounds, compared to Clyde, who was 5 foot 5 and only 127 pounds. That's Ed being about 1.8 meters and 90 kilos to Clyde's 1.6 meters and only 57 kilos. Ed was in prison for life, so he didn't see much of a reason to try to play by the rules. When Clyde joined Easton, the back-breaking work was hell. But when Ed started raping him and beating Clyde into submission, that was a new level of hell. It didn't help that the guards and plenty of other prisoners knew what Ed was doing to Clyde. They didn't do anything about it. Well, except for one prisoner. His name was Aubrey Scally, and for reasons lost to history, Aubrey hated Ed. He told Clyde that if he were to kill Ed, Aubrey would take the blame for it. So he did, and Aubrey was true to his word. Still, that didn't stop the slave labor at the farm, though. Faced with 12 more years on his sentence, Clyde knew he would die there if he couldn't find a way to lessen the workload. He decided the way to do that was to cut off his toes. Surprisingly, that wasn't uncommon at Easton. There's a report of one of Clyde's friends that he made in prison named Ralph Fultz, 
who claimed that he witnessed 14 different prisoners cutting off something in a single week, fingers, toes, really anything to try to be reassigned to an easier workload. Unfortunately for Clyde, he didn't really need to do that. Unbeknownst to Clyde, his mother, Kumi, had been petitioning to get Clyde released from prison almost as soon as he went in. After all, there was no proof Clyde had done any of the vicious things that the others that he ran with had done, and it seemed to work. Six days after chopping off his toes, Clyde Barrow was released from prison on parole. After managing to survive forced labor, rape, and such horrible conditions, Clyde promised he would never go back. He'd rather die. Going back to the movie, soon after meeting Bonnie, Clyde pulls off his first robbery with her. It's a small store with a Ritz Grocery sign out front. That's not something that really happened, but it's indicative of a lot of the smaller robberies that Clyde did pull off, both before and immediately after his time in prison. Clyde was primarily the one who pulled off the robberies. Bonnie wasn't involved in a lot of these. She'd usually wait outside. Like the fictional Ritz store in the movie, most of these robberies were small-time jobs, 10 or 20 bucks here and there. Oh, and remember that scene in the movie where Clyde tries to rob a bank for the first time? He goes in and the bank is completely empty with the exception of one teller who's behind the counter. Clyde says, it's a stick up and demands the money. The teller says, what money? Then he explains that the bank went out of business three weeks ago. That actually happened. Well, the scene is fictionalized, of course, and it didn't happen in Texas like the movie seems to imply. But there was a bank in Missouri. At the time, Clyde had a couple of accomplices. And when they burst into the bank, the one person inside the bank said that it had failed just a couple days earlier. There wasn't any money to steal. So Clyde decided to rob another bank in town, which they did a couple days later and walked away with a whopping $110. Well, the two guys with Clyde at the time actually told Clyde that there was only $80. It was split up between the group and the two accomplices took some of the money to go to town to restock on supplies. They never came back. In all, that bank robbery earned Bonnie and Clyde a grand total of $25. That's the same as about $450 today. Generally speaking, Clyde didn't really like robbing banks though. Banks were typically guarded better in the center of town and drew more attention from the police when they were robbed than a small grocery store, gas station, and rural areas. And as given evidence by the take of $25, they didn't always promise a huge payday. During the Great Depression, which was rampaging the country at the time, Many of these small-time robberies were enough to keep Bonnie and Clyde going for just a couple of days until their next one. Meanwhile, they'd steal cars often and stay on the road to keep away from authorities. And since we're on the topic of cars, the next main plot point in the movie happens when they find Michael J. Pollard's character, C.W. Moss. C.W. Moss is a fictional composite character. His purpose in the movie is essentially to be someone else in Bonnie and Clyde's gang that's not... Bonnie and Clyde, or later Clyde's brother and his sister-in-law. In truth, there were a number of people who joined Bonnie and Clyde on their criminal spree. Names like Ralph Fultz, who Clyde met in prison, or Raymond Hamilton, or W.D. Jones. Most of the people who joined Bonnie and Clyde ended up leaving at some point. Either they were caught by the law, or they wanted to distance themselves from the crimes that were being attributed to Clyde Barrow. That last person I mentioned, though, W.D. Jones. He's probably the primary inspiration for C.W. Moss because it was W.D. who was there for many of the scenes in the film, like the shootout, which we'll learn about later. 
It was also WD who was afraid of the dark and slept in a chair or on the floor in the same room while Bonnie and Clyde shared a bed. Those are things that we see C.W. Moss doing in the movie. Oh, and by the way, throughout the movie, we get the sense that Bonnie and Clyde never had an intimate relationship. We don't see that until the very end, but that's something historians have actually debated. Even though WD shared a room with them, they'd often send him off onto little errands so they could have some alone time. After all, they were lovers. Going back to the movie, we're soon introduced to Clyde's brother, Buck. He's played by Gene Hackman, and along with his wife, Estelle Parsons' character, Blanche, they join up with Clyde, Bonnie, and CW to form what they refer to as the Barrow Gang. One of the first things they do after reuniting is take pictures. It's here that we see Warren Beatty's version of Clyde Barrow pose in front of a car with a Thompson machine gun, or Tommy gun as they're commonly called. Then Bonnie takes one in front of the car with a pistol in her hand and a cigar hanging out of her mouth. The time and place where those photos were taken was changed, but they are real photos. I'll make sure to add them to the Based on a True Story Facebook group so you can see them if you want to. Soon after snapping the photos in the movie, Clyde says they should take a vacation, head up to Missouri where the law isn't looking for them. Trying to lay low for a bit, the gang heads up to Joplin, Missouri, and things don't turn out to be very calm when the cops show up. The gang barely makes it out of their alive, although three cops get killed in the process. That shootout really happened. What the movie doesn't really mention when we see Gene Hackman's version of Buck Barrow join his younger brother is what he was doing before this. He was in prison, serving a sentence for robbery. Actually, he'd performed the robbery years earlier, but managed to escape from prison and stayed on the run for almost two years. Then both Blanche and Kumi, Buck's mother, managed to convince him to turn himself in so he could serve the remaining four years on his sentence and be done with crime. She wanted, Blanche that is, to live a normal, honest life. So that's what Buck did. He turned himself over on December 27, 1931, after spending one last Christmas with family. Almost as soon as he was sent back to prison, Blanche and Kumi started trying to get him out. Not by escape, but the legal way, through parole. And it worked. One year, two months, and 24 days after turning himself over, Buck was released. That would make it March 23, 1933. And he was not released on parole, but pardoned. Blanche could finally have a happy life with Buck without having to look over her shoulder. Upon hearing of his brother's release, it was Clyde who went to go visit his brother, not the other way around like we see in the film. And the scene of the reunion really wasn't like what we saw in the movie. Clyde, Bonnie, and W.D. Jones showed up at Blanche's parents' house where Buck and Blanche were staying at about 4 a.m. Bonnie was drunk and went to bed almost immediately, so I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that's not where they took the photos that we see in the movie. But it is true that it was here that Clyde suggested a vacation of sorts. He'd always looked up to his big brother, so now that Buck was out of prison, he wanted to spend some time with him. A few days later, they started their trek to Missouri. While in Missouri, they planned to stay for longer than their usual pit stops. After all, it was a vacation for the family. They rented a spot for a month, and the five enjoyed living together in one spot for a change. Well... It's not like Blanche was on the run before this, so all of this really wasn't quite special to her. She probably wanted it to end. If you remember, she wanted Buck to turn himself in, so when he got out, they could have an honest life. Buck had just been pardoned. Certainly, he would go right back to prison if he were found with Clyde, Bonnie, and W.D. Jones. Three people wanted for too many crimes to count at this point. On the other hand, Buck was trying to convince Clyde to do exactly what he had done. 
turn himself in, do the time, and come out on the other end clean. This honest life with Bonnie could be a permanent thing. In the movie, the shootout starts while the group is gathered in the living room of their place. Bonnie is reading something while Clyde casually looks out the window to see a police car pulling into the driveway. He gives a warning that the laws are here. Blanche screams and the shootout begins. The laws, by the way, was actually what Bonnie and Clyde called the authorities chasing them. But that's not really what happened. It was on April 13th, 1932, when Buck, Bonnie, and Blanche were inside their rented apartment. Clyde and W.D. had left the place around 4 p.m., but were forced to return in short order when their car had engine troubles. No sooner had they pulled back into their driveway when a police car pulled in behind them. Although they didn't know it at the time, the police had no idea who exactly was there. They only guessed it was some illegal bootlegging going on. Remember, this was around the time of Prohibition, and while it was technically repealed in 1932 in Missouri, that only applied to beer. Upon seeing the cops, Clyde and WD wasted no time. Bullets started flying. Although, in my research, I couldn't find any proof that three cops had died in the shootout like we see in the movie. One died on the scene, and another was fatally injured. But one was enough. All of a sudden, with a lawman murdered, Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker were wanted for a lot more than theft. Remember those photos that Bonnie and Clyde took early in the movie, one of Clyde holding a machine gun and Bonnie with a cigar in her mouth? Well, they never sent those photos or any others to the newspaper like the movies implies. In truth, it was a combination of the group holding up in the Joplin apartment for a prolonged period, along with the surprise of being jumped by the cops and the rush to escape. Those factors all played into a massive amount of things being left behind. That is how those photos got out. They were on a roll of film that had not been developed yet, so a local newspaper developed them and then published them. Oh, and another of the items left behind was a poem handwritten by Bonnie Parker called Story of Suicide Sal. Same as the photos, the gang never sent Bonnie's poems to the papers like the movie implies either. The American public now had faces that they could put to the Barrow Gang, as they were called by the papers. Clyde, a dashing young man, and Bonnie, a pretty and rebellious girl doing very unladylike things like smoking a cigar, something that ladies of the day typically didn't do in public. And so, their notoriety grew. With it, even more crimes were attributed to them by both the media and the police. That's not to say they weren't also committing more crimes. They were, but there were plenty more crimes attributed to them that they did not commit. That's something that the movie mentions. After the shootout in Joplin, the gang steals a newspaper. As Clyde drives, Gene Hackman's version of Buck reads to Clyde, Bonnie, and C.W. Moss, and Buck's wife, Blanche, in the car. In the article that he's reading, there's a long list of crimes being attributed to the gang. An oil refinery in Texas, Sanger City National Bank in Indiana, two Piggly Wiggly stores in Texas, and another grocery store in Missouri. That's an oversimplification for the movie, but the basic gist of that is accurate. By that, what I mean is that the publicity Clyde had started to attract was something of a blessing and a curse. During the time of the Great Depression, when people didn't have money to throw at newspapers and didn't really want to read reports about how horrible things were going in the country anyway, the story of the two criminals were something exciting. Just like the movie stars that the younger Bonnie and Clyde had wanted to fashion their lives after, 
and the stories that helped them escape their own lives for a brief moment in time. The papers were doing that for people around the country with the stories of Bonnie and Clyde. Of course, it also helped them sell papers, too. It's not like they were doing it as a service to Bonnie and Clyde. For their part, Bonnie and Clyde seemed to enjoy the stories written about them. It was almost an escape for them, too. But the downside of this notoriety in the papers meant that papers often reported a lot of things incorrectly. For example, it was not Bonnie and Clyde who robbed the Piggly Wiggly in Texas, like the movie says, because we know from history that Bonnie and Clyde were in Michigan at the time. But that doesn't mean the movie is incorrect, because it is true that Bonnie and Clyde were given credit for the crime. Around this time is something the movie doesn't show at all, but I think it's important to point out. On June 10th, 1933, Clyde was driving with Bonnie and W.D. down backcountry roads. Bonnie was in the front seat with W.D. in the back. As you might imagine, there weren't any streetlights. Being nighttime, it's almost impossible to see. And Clyde was driving fast. Too fast. All of a sudden, the car flew through a wooden barricade blocking off some construction. Losing control, the car was thrown from the road and rolled over many times. Surprisingly, Clyde and W.D. were able to walk away from the wreck without any major injuries. Bonnie was not so lucky. It would seem somewhere in there, the car's battery burst open, causing the acid inside to splash on Bonnie's leg. You could see the bone. It was bad. She would never walk the same again. Clyde, with his limp from losing the two toes in prison, and now Bonnie's severe injuries to her leg, they weren't exactly the glamorous anti-heroes the newspapers of the time portrayed, or even like what we see in the movie. Speaking of which, going back to the movie, after going on the run from the Joplin incident, we see things get even worse when there's another run-in with the law. This time, we see a sign out front of the rented cabin that they're staying in. It says it's Platte City, Iowa. According to the movie, the gang is not as lucky in this shootout as Buck gets shot in the head. He doesn't die, though, and they manage to escape. When that scene in Platte City was fictionalized for the film, the basic gist was there. Well, except for the fact that Platte City isn't even in Iowa. It's in Missouri. For a bit of geographical refresher, Missouri is the state just south of Iowa, and Platte City is about 25 miles or 40 kilometers north of Kansas City, Missouri. That would make Platte City about 85 miles or 136 kilometers to the south of the border between Missouri and Iowa. In the movie, we see Blanche and C.W. Moss go into town to get some food. While they're there, one of the patrons of the diner notices a gun in C.W.'s belt and calls the cops. In truth, it wasn't really someone noticing a gun that tipped off the cops, but rather it was that Blanche, who paid for the rooms, said that there were three people there. That's what Clyde told her to say. But then she went into town and bought five meals. Plus, the manager noticed that Clyde pulled the car into the garage near the cabin Blanche rented backwards. That was something of a tip-off that they might be criminals because that was something that criminals often did at the time, really to make it easier for a quick getaway. In the early morning hours of July 20th, 1933, 13 cops surrounded the two cabins rented by the criminals. Two walked up to the door and knocked on one of the cabins, Buck and Blanche's cabin. Within moments, gunfire had erupted from the cabins. The cops fired back. This isn't something we've talked about, but Bonnie and Clyde had robbed armories a couple times, giving them a decent stash of weapons. One of Clyde Barrow's favorite guns was the M1918 or M1918 Browning Automated Rifle or BAR. That was a fully automatic machine gun that was developed for military use in World War I. 
The bullets riddled the cop cars, but amazingly, none of the cops were killed. In the movie, as they're escaping the scene, we see things aren't quite as lucky for the barrel gang. Buck gets shot in the head, then a bullet ricochets and Blanche's eyes start bleeding. That's true. Buck suffered a terrible wound in his head after being shot during their escape. Blanche gathered her courage and helped her injured husband to the car, surely saving his life in the process, but at a cost. With Clyde driving, the gang hightailed it out of there, but not before bullets shattered the car's windows. Blanche screamed. Shards of glass had lodged into each of her eyes, effectively blinding her. Going back to the movie after the shootout in Platte City, the cops catch up to the gang. They gun down Buck in a clearing. We hear Blanche yelling, Daddy, as Gene Hackman's version of Buck dies, and Bonnie, Clyde, and C.W. Moss escape to the nearby woods. Maybe it's just me, but I don't remember hearing Blanche ever call Buck that at any other point in the movie. So I had to rewind that scene a couple times to make sure I understood what Estelle Parsons' version of Blanche was saying. Yep, it's daddy. And that really was the term of endearment that Blanche called her husband, Buck. He reciprocated with a term of his own for Blanche, baby. And for what it's worth, Bonnie's nickname for Clyde was daddy too. Uh, Bonnie's nickname was Honey. That's what Clyde called her. They called each other these nicknames anytime that they were in town. They didn't want to accidentally say their real names and then have someone overhear them and report them to the cops. One big difference between the scene we see in the movie here in the clearing and what really happened was that Buck did not die. He was shot multiple times, but when the cops closed in, they arrested both Buck and Blanche and then rushed them to the hospital. The shooting in the clearing, which was at a place called Dexfield Park, took place on July 24th, four days after the shootout in Platte City. Buck died five days later in the hospital on July 29th, 1933. Meanwhile, with the focus on Buck and Blanche, Clyde, Bonnie, and W.D. managed to slip away. But not before they were injured. In the movie, we see that Bonnie gets shot after this, but that didn't happen. Well, she did get hit, but not nearly as serious as the movie makes it seem. Mostly it was some buckshot that made her bleed. If you remember, Bonnie was already injured from the car wreck. That was her big injury. Clyde was shot, though, in his left arm and buckshot in his face. WD wasn't hit nearly as bad as Clyde and had mostly superficial wounds. Back in the movie, after escaping, C.W. Moss takes the badly injured Bonnie and Clyde to his father's house in Louisiana. They head out there for a while while they recover from their injuries. That's speeding up the timeline quite a bit. After the shootout in Missouri, they made their way to Iowa. Then they went west to Colorado, north to Minnesota, then over to Illinois before going south through Nebraska to Mississippi. They stayed on the move, trying to elude the law enforcement that was after them in full force. Finally, they made their way back to Texas, where Clyde left Bonnie to recover for a while, while he and two other guys that he recruited into the gang went north to Oklahoma. But that didn't work out. They almost got caught when, as luck would have it, some prisoners broke out of a prison in McAllister, Oklahoma, and lawmen were swarming the area. They were chasing Clyde Barrow, but they thought that they were chasing escaped convicts. Clyde ended up going back to West Dallas, where he could hide in relative safety. Oh, sure, the police knew that that's where his family was from. They knew where his normal hangout places were, but the people of West Dallas also hated the cops. 
Remember, this was during the Great Depression. On top of that, there was the Dust Bowl that caused economic hardships like they'd never seen. Life was hard. No one was a fan of the authorities who enforced the laws of the banks that had only made their lives worse. Going back to the movie, there's a scene where we see Faye Dunaway's version of Bonnie reading a poem to Clyde. This is the real poem written by Bonnie Parker called The Story of Bonnie and Clyde. You've read the story of Jesse James of how he lived and how he died. If you're in need of something to read, here's the story of Bonnie and Clyde. Now Bonnie and Clyde are the Barrow Gang. I'm sure you all have read how they rob and steal and those who squeal are usually found dying or dead. There's lots of untruths to these write-ups. They're not so ruthless as that. Their nature is raw. They hate the law. The stool pigeons, spotters, and rats. They call them cold-blooded killers. They say they are heartless and mean. But I say this with pride, that once I knew Clyde, when he was honest and upright and clean. But the laws fooled around, kept taking him down and locking him up in a cell. Till he said to me, I'll never be free, so I'll meet a few of them in hell. The road was so dimly lighted, there was no highway signs to guide. But they made up their minds, if all roads were blind, they wouldn't give up till they died. The road gets dimmer and dimmer, sometimes you can hardly see, but it's fight man to man, and all you can do, for they know they can never be free. From heartbreak, some people have suffered. From weariness, some people have died. But take it, all in all, our troubles are small, till we get like Bonnie and Clyde. If a policeman is killed in Dallas, and they have no clue or guide, if they can't find a fiend, they just wipe their slate clean and hand it on Bonnie and Clyde. There's two crimes committed in America, not accredited to the Barrow mob. They had no hand in the kidnapped demand, nor the Kansas City Depot job. A newsboy once said to his buddy, I wish old Clyde would get jumped. In these awful hard times, we'd make a few dimes if five or six cops would get bumped. The police haven't got the report yet, but Clyde called me up today. He said, don't start any fights. We aren't working nights. We're joining the NRA. From Irving to West Dallas Viaduct is known as the Great Divide, where the women are kin and the men are men, and they won't stool on Bonnie and Clyde. If they try to act like citizens and rent them a nice little flat, about the third night they're invited to fight by a subgun's rat-tat-tat. They don't think they're too tough or desperate. They know that the law always wins. They've been shot at before, but they do not ignore that death is the wages of sin. Someday they'll go down together and they'll bury them side by side. To few, it'll be grief. To the law, a relief. But it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. According to the movie, Warren Beatty's version of Clyde says that he'll mail the poem to the newspapers so people will remember them. That didn't happen. In fact, no one knew about the poem until Bonnie's mother had it published after Bonnie died. Apparently, Bonnie had given it to her just a few weeks before she died. Speaking of which... The story of Bonnie and Clyde comes to an end in the movie in an eerily similar fashion to what Bonnie predicted in her poem. We see someone that we haven't really talked about up to this point, Frank Hammer. 
He's the Texas Ranger that we saw Bonnie and Clyde kidnap earlier in the movie. And they take a photo with him, humiliating him. In fact, the movie makes it seem like it's because of that kidnapping and photo that Frank Hammer has some sort of a vendetta against the criminal couple. None of that happened. It is true that Frank Hammer was the Texas Ranger who laid an ambush for Bonnie and Clyde, but the real Frank Hammer never met Bonnie and Clyde before the ambush. In the movie, we see the ambush as being something that C.W. Moss's father sets up when he makes a deal with Frank Hammer. Well, we already learned that C.W. Moss was a composite character. One of the characters that went into C.W. was a man named Henry Methvin. He was a member of Bonnie and Clyde's gang up until the very end. There's not a lot of proof about the details of what really happened, but as many people believe, it was Henry's father, Ivan, who gave Frank Hammer information about Bonnie and Clyde. He did this, allegedly, to keep his own son from getting the death penalty that Bonnie and Clyde would surely get. The movie makes it seem like C.W. knew about the deal between his dad and the authorities, but in truth, we don't really know if Henry knew about the deal. We don't even know if the deal really happened. What we do know is that Frank Hammer led a posse of six lawmen from both Texas and Louisiana armed with some of the same Browning automatic rifles that Clyde fancied. Since Clyde Barrow was a master of crossing the state line to avoid capture, authorities on both sides of the area wanted him found. They identified a road near Ivan Methvin's place that they thought Bonnie and Clyde would travel. If there's one consistent thing about Bonnie and Clyde's travels, it's that they kept going back to family. But would it work? Bonnie and Clyde had somehow managed to escape in Joplin, and again in Platte City, and again at Dexfield Park. At about 9.15 a.m. on the morning of May 23, 1934, Bonnie and Clyde sped their stolen Ford V8 down that very same backcountry road. Ivan, Henry's father, had his truck parked on the side of the road. There was another truck coming down the road. Clyde slowed down his car and stopped next to Ivan's truck. There are some conflicting reports about what happened next. One common theme is that everyone agrees it was Deputy Prentice Oakley who shot first. The bullet hit Clyde Barrow in the head, killing him immediately. Then, the posse opened fire, riddling the car with 130 bullets. Clyde Barrow was 25 years old when he died. Bonnie Parker was 23. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. There's so much more to the story of Bonnie and Clyde. To continue your dive into their fascinating hold on the American public, there's a couple places I would recommend starting. There's a great book by Jeff Gwynn that I mentioned called Go Down Together, The True Untold Story of Bonnie and Clyde. Or there's another book called Fugitives, The Story of Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker by Emma Parker and Nell Barrow-Cohen those last names sound familiar is because Emma Parker was Bonnie's mother and Nell Barrow Cohen was Clyde's sister. Another great read is My Life with Bonnie and Clyde, the only book written by someone who has actually spent time in the Barrow gang, Blanche Barrow. She's also the only one who lived long enough to tell the tale as she was held in prison while her husband Buck died to be followed by Bonnie and Clyde later. I'll include links to those books and plenty more resources over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Before we get to the answer to the two truths and a lie game, here is another five-star review. This one comes from DJM7ZD over on Apple Podcasts, and it's titled Top Notch. 
well-researched, very thorough, and written and produced to be as entertaining as it is informative. Thanks so much, DJM7ZD. I'm really glad that you find the stories we learn about to be a blend of education and entertaining. That's exactly what I'm going for. And sometimes it's hard to know if I'm able to walk that line from this side of the mic. So I really appreciate your taking the time to not only listen, but to leave a review and let me know. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one. There were a lot of crimes that got attributed to Bonnie and Clyde that they didn't actually do. Number two, Clyde met Bonnie before he went to prison and cut off his two toes. Number three, Bonnie Parker married Clyde Barrow before they went on the run. Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is number three. As we learned, Bonnie Parker was married, but she was married to a man named Roy Thornton very early on. Now, in practice, the marriage didn't last very long, but technically, Bonnie never divorced Roy. So, Clyde and Bonnie were never married, especially since, well, to be legally married, you would probably have to turn yourself in, and that's not something that they wanted to do. And that brings us to an end of our story today, but it doesn't have to be the end of your learning about Bonnie and Clyde. Don't forget, you can find plenty of books, resources, and more info at the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon. <laughs>